I think you and I could take $100 million and start up an organization to tell them to go hire people uh, to look at their COVID policy. What do you think? It's incredible. It's it's amazing. They're, they're up to $280 million now, actually. Oh, wow. Right. So we'll do it for cheaper. So That's Mark, right. Exactly. Mark, if you're listening, I know he listens. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're, here's Every our competitive week. tender bid. <laughs> we'll do it for $150. Uh, then, you know, but there's some room to move there. Welcome to this week's moderated content weekly news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Dirk, and Alex Stamos. And today, first up, we are joined again by Stanford Internet Observatory's own Rihanna Pfefferkorn to bring us up to speed on a few legislative developments in the child safety space over the last week, which I'm extremely grateful for because there is so much happening all over the place uh, that I just could not keep up with this. So we are now uh, actually having correspondence to cover different areas of what's going on in this space. So fantastic. So, Rihanna. Here we are. Our child safety correspondent. Crossing to you live. Um, There's two uh, things that we want to talk about today. It's the reintroduction of the Earn It Act, which you've talked a lot about over the years, and then the introduction of another piece of legislation called the Stop CSAM Act. So let's start with the Earn It Act then. Can you bring us up to speed on that? Sure. Thanks for having me on. And I feel like I am, in fact, the correspondent who's always in the field when there's like a hurricane that I'm just standing out here amidst the onslaught of like online, like safety bills, just, you know, going, Evelyn, I'm out here on the street, you know. being blown away and falling down. Anyway, so um, the Earn It Act, this is the third go around for this bill to be introduced in the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was reintroduced last week. This bill would remove Section 230 protections with regard to federal laws against CSAM, uh, specifically the, the two laws that prohibit knowingly sending it, receiving it, selling or offering it, possessing, producing, all that stuff is illegal under a couple of federal statutes. The bill would also create a commission that is stacked with mostly a lot of people from uh, law enforcement and child safety organizations, along with a couple of folks from civil liberties or uh, computer security backgrounds, whose job would be to recommend a set of non-binding best practices for how to uh, protect children online. The topics that they're supposed to consider are listed in the bill. The non-controversial part of the bill that I really wish like legislators would just pull out and they could pass this tomorrow would just be a find and replace for every instance of the phrase child pornography to replace it with child sex abuse material everywhere in the U.S. code like you could pass that today you know if, if you wanted but the bill has been very controversial every time that it has been introduced because of the incentives that it would create to essentially uh, incentivize the over-removal of perfectly legal content, lest there be some content that relates to to CSAM lurking in there. We saw the same thing happen after the SESTA-FOSTA enactment in 2018 that carved out, I don't want to say regular sex trafficking, that sounds weird, but like non-child sex trafficking offenses from Section 230. And, you know, the law, of course, 230 has never prohibited criminal law enforcement by the federal DOJ. And so one of the questions I've always had with regard to the Earn It bill is if there has not been any enforcement that we know of by DOJ of the federal laws against hosting CSAM, because that includes like if you don't report it as you're required to do by a separate federal statute as a online service provider, then now you are illegally hosting this yourself. You are liable under these statutes. If those aren't being enforced against uh, against providers that are supposedly, according to the sponsors of this bill, running amok with not abiding by their obligations, 
shouldn't that be something that Congress should investigate first before creating this Section 230 carve out that would have all of these potential let's let's pretend that they're unintended consequences for speech online that is not a CSAM, that is that is legal speech, but that may otherwise be disfavored, particularly, I think, at a time where because this would allow private lawsuits and state criminal charges under certain state laws that are equivalent effectively to one part of federal law with respect to liability for the advertisement, promotion, presentation, distribution, or solicitation of child sex abuse material. Now that we have like an all-out war on queer people, on trans people, there's a lot more, even than there had been before, concern about how state prosecutors could potentially run with a 230 carve-out for CSAM at a time where grooming is now equivalent to like drag queen story hour. In fact, the, we have this bill. This right. bill is almost identical to the version that was introduced last year, which in turn was almost identical to the version that had passed out of committee in 2020. Of the two things that are different in this year's bill, one of them is a different length to extend the preservation period for uh, cyber tips that are reported to NCMEC. The other is removing two instances of the word grooming that had been in previous lists of child safety offenses um, <laughs> in prior versions of the bill, which I take as an indication that the sponsors of the bill, uh, which are bipartisan, Graham and Blumenthal, that they're aware like, that that is a hot button word now. And so I think that you know we are in a place where the bill hasn't changed, but the cultural context surrounding this bill has changed. Not only are we seeing kind of this tide of interest in online child safety bills and in like online safety bills more generally, but culturally, the potential effects of incentivizing the removal of more content for fear of liability, thanks to the abrogation of, 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 of Section 230, are coming at a time where Concerns about the removal of LGBTQ content online uh, would be particularly emphatic here. In addition, the potential ramifications of this bill uh, for encryption, which is what I mostly study, is encryption policy. There's some efforts in the language of EARNIT to provide protection for offering encrypted services and saying that you can't sue or bring charges because somebody offers an encrypted service or didn't do something to, to undermine that. But you could still introduce evidence of the, of the encryption offering if you were able to come up with whatever other reason for why you're suing. So it's still pretty weak sauce as encryption protection goes. And you know, in terms of the different cultural moment that we're at, even compared to last spring, the major difference now has been the fall of Roe v. Wade. And so anything now that disincentivizes encryption, that potentially offers a door for liability for having an encrypted service that then could be misused uh, to transmit CSAM, I think is doing a huge disservice to the need for reproductive privacy and the ability to seek, obtain information about and obtain um, abortion or other reproductive care. And, you know, the thing that I've been saying about this bill is that you cannot be both pro-choice and anti-encryption. And so any Democratic member of Congress who's trying to have it both ways needs to sort of figure out how they're going to try and square that circle because this is you can't have you know a, a bill that is pushing against offering the strongest possible cybersecurity to your users at a t and simultaneously saying we want to open up potential you know legal liability and state charges at a time when half of the country is trying to criminalize basic health care so a lot there I, I mean I do think it's important for us to recognize like that the changing 
coalition here of, of people who are behind this for both good and bad purposes. I mean, there are le- people who have legitimately cared about child sexual abuse. But like you said, you unfortunately have people now using this as a political cudgel of the idea that if you you know, you're grabbing these terms that used to have real meaning and, and there's actual meaning here. You know, one of the, this is one of the only areas where we have definitional alignment between different countries. And in fact, there are kind of international working groups on this. Like the, the big one is called the, we're called the Luxembourg guidelines, which is the terminology guidelines for the protection of children from sexual exploitation and sexual abuse, um, which is from like an inner governmental working group, which defines groomer, right? Like from a bunch of people sat around and like, what does it mean to groom children? And it means like the the corruption or the recruiting of children for sexual purposes uh, does not just mean every bad, every person I, I dislike. And it, it really is sad that we can't, we can no longer talk about like these real, real problems without sounding like it's a, a political component, right? Like you, you can't use the term grooming anymore. And that makes it very hard to, to have honest discussions in Congress because this really is a legitimate problem. Okay. And so Rihanna, you mentioned that the, the tidal wave of concern around uh, child sexual abuse and child safety at the moment. And so that's a good segue to the other bill that we'd love for you to bring us up to speed on because it's a 133 page piece of, of legislation, not publicly available yet, but I'm, I'm super glad that I don't uh, have to get across it. So tell us about the Stop CSAM Act and what what that would be doing. So like you mentioned, this bill is over 130 pages long. I and everybody I know is still trying to wrap our arms around it and digest it. You know, it's it's at least convenient that Ernit is largely unchanged from the last time around, because if there'd been major changes to that too, we'd be even more overwhelmed than we already are. So this is um, a bill that was introduced by Senator Durbin, who is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, which gives him a lot of power, I think, to sort of have you know set the agenda for his own bill here. Originally, both Earn It and Stop CSAM were supposed to be marked up later this week on, on Thursday in committee. I heard this morning that Earn It now is going to get pushed out by like another week. I haven't heard anything. What committee is That's that? Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, like, like Evelyn said, like both of these laws, the, the bill text isn't available on the congressional website, like for tracking these bills yet, which is which is frustrating. I think it is a failure of like democratic basic transparency that it's possible for Senate committees to decide to introduce and market bills before their constituents have had the time to see them at all, read them or analyze them. And that's not just me complaining about trying to, to figure out what this bill says uh, across its 133 pages. So this bill has a few different things that it does, some of which are just not necessarily content moderation issues per se. There's stuff that is just way outside of my lane, like expanding mandatory reporters for child abuse. So I'm just not even going to weigh in on that. I don't know anything about it. Some other clauses about how to protect child victims and witnesses in federal court, uh, restitution payments for CSAM offenses. The things that I think are more more pertinent for our, uh, for our discussion today would be some transparency reporting requirements, which would apply only to larger platforms, meaning 1 million monthly active users or $50 million in annual revenue, having to describe things such as the provider's culture of safety, the measures and technologies that it employs for protecting children and from, for keeping its service from being used to sexually abuse or exploit children, um, factors that interfere with the ability to detect CSAM and uh, exploitation and assessing uh, the impact of those factors. It creates a new federal crime that applies to all providers of interactive computing services as defined by, by 230, not just the bigger entities that would be covered by the reporting requirements. And it would make it illegal for us 
an ICS provider to knowingly host or store child pornography or make it available to any person or otherwise to knowingly promote or facilitate a violation of certain delineated other statutes in the law that already uh, criminalize some uh, some child sexual abuse uh, offenses. So it's, it's unfortunate. Like there's a bunch of non-controversial stuff, right? Like you said, one, you can change the language. So it, you know, your consistent language throughout the code. Second, you can fix the preservation requirements, uh, which for those people who, who don't know, there's this issue in that the, you know, mostly tech companies that have evidence of child sexual abuse have to delete it within a certain period of time. And that period of time is not long enough for, for usually warrants to come from local and state folks. And so the evidence is gone by the time the warrant comes and they, the companies have no choice. There's clarity around training of machine learning models and such. This stuff should be non-controversial. They can just pass on a voice voice vote. It's, it's really unfortunate that we can make no progress in this because they have to staple on things that imperil encryption, that create a bunch of privacy issues, that create all these interstate issues. I feel exactly the same way about exactly those two things. I think you could pull that out and, and pass that tomorrow. But instead, you know, this stop CSAM law would create this new crime that as far as I can tell is duplicative of existing law. It is already a crime to host CSAM. Why do we need to have another law that additionally makes it specifically illegal for ICS providers uh, for you know, online platforms to knowingly host this stuff. Like they all, it's already illegal for them to do that. It's using some language that is similar to the language in the SESTA-FOSTA law that I mentioned, which is currently being challenged in the DC circuit. We're waiting for an opinion to come out on whether uh, the phrasing of promoting or facilitating a violation there regarding sex trafficking, whether that's unconstitutionally vague, because that's the exact language that can be interpreted to be against encryption? Are you knowingly facilitating CSAM if you offer encryption and you know just generally that you know people are probably using this to trade or elicit from children uh, offensive imagery? There is also a section that will expand civil remedies for victims of online child sexual exploitation. So there's now going to be a carve out under, C- under stop CSAM for uh, any claim for conduct relating to child exploitation, um, which is not defined on its own, but there's a sort of a laundry list of other statutes that would would qualify. And it lowers the mens rea standard for bringing civil claims under the now abrogated section 230 for the intentional or knowing, reckless, or negligent promotion or facilitation of conduct that violates federal CSAM and exploitation laws, um, or for uh, hosting or storing or making uh, CSAM available. And that is lower than the mens rea in this new federal crime that the law would also create that for knowingly hosting, promoting, or facilitating CSE offenses. So it makes a, it both adds a carve out from Section 230, and then it lowers the liability threshold from the knowing standard that we have in existing law to saying now you could bring private uh, plaintiff lawsuits for as low as recklessly or negligently facilitating conduct that violates the law. That certainly is something that will be used against encryption. And I don't think this is accidental. Um, when there was a hearing in mid-February on online child safety, Durbin's office put out a press release immediately afterwards saying that he was going to introduce this stop CSAM bill. And in the very start of the press release, drawing a link between saying uh, encryption is choosing privacy at the expense of children. So he's definitely out to, to get <laughs> encryption, I think, with this bill in the same way that the sponsors of Earn It have made it very clear that that's what they want to add expanded scanning to reduce the amount of protection for privacy and security that providers offer to their users. So it's a good thing we have a full-time correspondent who is just covering 
all these right. issues. Not, not good for my weekend, but, you know, just generally <laughs> good for you guys, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, amazing that you didn't get blown away into the storm on this one, uh, Rihanna. Um, and we will link in the show notes, too, to a great piece uh, that you have in Lawfare today about the transparency reporting provisions and why those need to be carefully crafted as well. So thank you for that. Okay, and so the next story, speaking of ways in which law enforcement provisions can be used in maintaining online safety. So here is a sort of a a novel charge brought by the DOJ this week. So DOJ brought charges against 40 members of a Chinese troll farm, accusing them of creating fake social media accounts to harass PRC dissidents and also of working with an employee of a US-based platform to try and get the dissidents' accounts removed uh, from those platforms. So uh, Alex, you had some thoughts about this one. Yeah. So I'm really glad that DOJ is both taking this action and shining a light on what is a real problem, which is that the People's Republic of China has a very aggressive program to try to control the speech and actions of not just their citizens, but anybody they consider to be kind of part of the greater family. You know, the, the PRC is is effectively turning into kind of an ethno state where they consider anybody of Han Chinese descent to have some kind of responsibility to them, which is obviously kind of ridiculous. And this has caused all kinds of problems, not just in Taiwan, obviously, and, you know, the, the takeover of Hong Kong. There's lots of concern about this in Singapore and the way that the PRC approaches the, you know, the large uh, plurality of Singaporean residents who are of Han Chinese descent. And now their actions in the US. And there's these three different coordinated actions by the DOJ. One was against the troll farm, which is, you know, people sitting in China who are working to abuse Chinese citizens or Chinese descendants, uh, people they consider dissidents. There's a long history of this that if you speak out against the PRC, people are slamming you in all kinds of different languages, telling all these lies about you. Famously, there's a there's a woman in Australia who's been targeted by this over and over and over again and going after her family members and such. Uh, really terrible abuse. This is the one that you know I think you're probably going to have the most interesting uh, First Amendment opinion on because most of that action seems to be totally virtual, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think this is actually really interesting because um, the statute under which these harassment, these interstate harassment charges are bought is the federal equivalent of the same statute that was before the Supreme Court last week in the case that we talked about at the end around online stalking or online harassment, where these messages are sent on a repeated basis concerning a particular individual. And the, the court was having this conversation about, you know, well, we, I don't know if we can criminalize this kind of speech unless it's explicitly threatening. You know, does this uh, fall under the First Amendment exception for true threats? And the court was having a big laugh about how some of these messages weren't that threatening because they would take individual statements out of context and look at them and say, well, you know, staying in cyber life is going to kill you. Uh, you know, I, and John Roberts uh, said, I, I don't know, I, I don't, can't say I haven't said that, right? right. Ha, ha, ha. Uh, yeah. One, like, <laughs> not cool, right? Like, I, I was actually super disappointed by the Supreme Court's actions there. I I wish this was the case because I find it much less likely that John Roberts would be making a joke about threats by the Chinese Communist Party. Right. Or the Ministry of Public Safety in this case. Exactly. Like putting them into context when you see this repeated messaging over sustained messaging and targeting an individual, uh, I think the, the the threat and the intimidation and the and the harm becomes much clearer. So in some ways, I don't know if we'll get an it's, – it's not going to go up because these are kind of performative charges because all of these defendants are you know overseas and so it's not actually going to get litigated. Right. Um, but you can see a, a First Amendment challenge to this kind of thing because the kind of messages that we're looking at in, in this case are things like, you know, sober up or live in a fantasy or uh, everything depends on one's mouth, right? Like they're not 
not the kind of like, I'm going to kill you messages that the court seems to be only concerned with, yeah. but quite clearly are extremely intimidating for all of the reasons that, you know, we talked about. I mean, it is interesting because it's, it's an obvious extension of DOJ's attempts to utilize American law to punish overseas hackers, right? Like this is, we have seen this template over and over again. If you work for a ransomware group, if you work for Ministry of State Security or PLA doing hacking, if you work for S- SVR doing hacking, that you can get up with an indictment, which is a real punishment if you're stuck, if you can never leave. I mean, it's a huge punishment to never be able to leave Russia. I think it's probably less of a punishment to never be able to leave China and Chinese uh you know, affiliated territories. That's a, a broader set of things. And their winter is a little nicer, you know, that you can't go visit your, your money in Cyprus, you know, if you're, if you're Russian. But I do think it's like an, an, a natural extension of that. But like you said, it runs up against the First Amendment. And the other two, I think, are a little cleaner. Um, they extended an indictment that they started in December 2020 of a group of people who were working together to censor Company One's uh, video chat service. This is pretty clearly Zoom. I have a you know, I have to declare here uh, a conflict. I did consulting for Zoom during their dark times uh, and help them think about a lot of security stuff, in, including how do you do internal monitoring for this kind of stuff. Uh, and it thinks company one over and over again. So it looks like you know, Zoom through the mechanisms they have built for understanding what's going on internally caught a Chinese employee who was going and censoring people uh, from talking about things that were against what the CCP wanted to be talked about. And they not only indicted him, but indicted all of his handlers. And then the third was a shutdown of kind of an overseas police bureau in New York, which is just straight up far uh, intimidation, like lots of, I think much less of a First Amendment issue. But but overall, like, I, I think this is really important because I have seen this over and over again. If you're a Chinese citizen, you are afraid of speaking your mind, you're afraid, you know, you come to the United States for a better life and the People's Republic is using their monitoring of WeChat, their monitoring of your families, the monitoring of all of your public social media to try to keep tabs on you and what you do. And I've, I've seen this used against employees. I've seen it used against students. And that's where I think DOJ needs to continue this work, but they should probably now start to look on the academic side because there's definitely a push by the PRC to try to silence students and other academics of Chinese descent from criticizing them by punishing them and trying to punish their family members. And so I hope that's that's where they go next. And it's good to see law enforcement using the powers that it already has to pursue this. Yeah, we didn't need a, a new act to give them all kinds of power. I, you know, I, I, as we were talking about before, FARA is this magical, you know, tool that you can use. It, it is the RICO of this, right? Like you can just attach it to almost any action in which they're they're acting, somebody's acting on behalf of another government. And that could definitely be abused, but at least it's not a new law, right? That's been a lot around for decades. Right. The Foreign Agents Registration Act. And maybe part of the reason why law enforcement is stepping up is because the old trick of relying on platforms uh, or <laughs> jawboning or for- trying to get platforms to do the work for them uh, might not be working so well. So uh, let's go over to our Twitter corner. <laughs> Okay, so first up, I'm actually grateful because uh, the weekend has given us an opportunity to cover the false advertising law segment of our Elon Elon Musk JD program, which I was getting really worried wasn't going to fit in there somehow. Right. And so another another part of the US code, another whole title now covered. That's right. Exactly. Such a relief. And so we are joined by visiting Professor Alexandra Roberts uh, to give us a lowdown on uh, what happened over the weekend and the potential false advertising implications. So what's going on at Twitter this week with check marks? those same check marks that once upon a time used to indicate a user's identity had been verified? 
the company announced that beginning April 20, it would remove all remaining legacy check marks and only accounts with paid subscriptions would display a check mark. And they appeared to go through with this plan. So now, if a user clicks on a blue check mark, the label reads, This account is verified because they are subscribed to Twitter Blue and verified their phone number. But a few strange things happened. First of all, some celebrities, Stephen King, LeBron James, William Shatner, received blue checks without actually signing up for Twitter Blue, and they were vocal about it. Musk then claimed he had paid for them himself. Meanwhile, some accounts of dead celebrities like Anthony Bourdain and Michael Jackson also apparently received blue checks without paying for them. And some large accounts that had publicly declared they would never sign up for Twitter Blue and encouraged others to block all blue check accounts also got blue checks against their will. Mashable called those spite check marks. So people were kind of mad about this and they wanted to know whether there might be legal recourse. The short answer is yes, I think there might be. The laws governing deceptive advertising and rights of publicity are really hard to summarize concisely because there are so many of them. So we've got federal false ad law under section 43A1B of the Lanham Act, where companies sue competitors for making deceptive statements about their products or someone else's products. Then we've got false endorsement under Section 43A, where someone's identity is connected with a product or service in such a way that consumers are likely to be misled about that person's sponsorship or approval of it. Meanwhile, Section 5 of the FTC Act prohibits unfair or deceptive acts or practices in or affecting commerce. So that's really nice and broad for the commission. And the FTC's endorsement guide mandates that if a business holds someone out as an endorser of their product, that person actually must be a bona fide user of that product. Meanwhile, most states have their own false advertising laws, many of which include prohibitions on false endorsement and deceptive statements. Those can provide standing for consumers or for state AGs to bring suit. Then finally, we got right of publicity law, which is itself a patchwork of state statute and common law causes of action. They generally give someone a misappropriation claim when someone else makes commercial use of their name, image, or likeness without their consent. So that one doesn't actually require confusion or that any consumers were deceived. That's just the use of basically a celebrity's name or or persona or identity without their permission. And more than 20 states extend that protection after death. So that means a dead celebrity's heirs can often sue over that kind of use. I won't go through the elements of a successful claim under all of these different laws, but just in broad strokes, I think there are a couple of key issues in play. First, what is it that happens when Twitter gifts a celebrity with a free blue check while simultaneously representing that a blue check means the account owner paid for Twitter blue membership? So is that a false statement of fact about Twitter services or a false statement about the celebrity? Is it an implied endorsement of the service by the celebrity? Does it misrepresent to other users that the user paid for the services? in a way that will deceive those users and that might affect their purchasing decisions. So how a fact finder characterizes this whole scenario determines for most of these causes of action whether the claim is viable. So kind of how we categorize what just happened. (laughs) 
And then second, a lot of these laws were designed for and are typically applied to traditional advertising. So billboards, print ads, TV ads, stuff like that. Applying them to new media and marketing in the age of SpawnCon can be tricky. If you follow Stephen King, for example, and you see a tweet or you see his profile now has a blue check indicating something untrue about his relationship with Twitter, that's not an ad in the traditional sense. But if Twitter made it a promoted tweet, then maybe it becomes one. Um, Or if it's not an ad, is the use at least commercial enough to be prohibited under some of these laws? Federal false ad cases have held that advertising and promotion must be aimed at the consuming public and intended to influence buying decisions. So we can imagine, I think, someone making the case that Twitter gave free blue checks to some high-profile accounts in order to entice their fans to pay for the service. So given the whole patchwork of laws here and the novelty of the situation, I think the outcome of any claims we might see is difficult to predict. So uh, I think that overview is great. From my perspective, obviously, there's all the the interesting legal stuff here, but this is just an incredible self-own by Musk, like from a, a historical timing perspective, because of generative AI, we are on the cusp of an you know, what I've been telling my students is a new age of bullshit, right? That effectively the cost of generating what seems like human created content in text, video and images has the cost of that is, is trending towards zero. And so just as the cost of moving information went to zero changed everything, this will be another humongous sea change. And as a result, every single thing in which you have some kind of anonymity or pseudo anonymity is going to be completely flooded by a small group of people who want to manipulate it. Identity is a huge deal now. Identity is really, really going to be important over the next decade. And Twitter had one of the first and best recognized identity programs, and they have completely destroyed it. They've made it a negative that people are begging to have it taken off the check mark. Just an incredible historical cell phone in this situation, because Twitter in a year is going to be quite possibly completely unusable because you're going to have no idea who people are, who is verified, and is going to be completely flooded with with adversarial AI-generated content. Yeah. And just a masterclass in marketing to have like basically every celebrity over the weekend publicly proclaiming as loudly as possible that, no, 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 I definitely did not pay for this product. I do not want to be associated with it, um, is, right. is fantastic brand. Except brand those who have, been, who have been deceased for a while, right? which right. is just the amazing part. Like, you know, like in, it's okay. It, Kobe Bryant fans are, are people who are super chill about his legacy. So that, that won't backfire at all. Right. Yeah. And there's always just a gross part of every uh, Twitter story as well. Um, just there are no, there is no bottom. There's no bottom. And speaking of this week, uh, Twitter quietly removed a line in its hateful content policy with explicit protections for transgender users and also removed all government funded and state affiliated labeling for public news broadcasters, state media organizations and uh, affiliated journalists. So uh, the funny uh, jokes around, you know, NPR and, and BBC and things are gone, but also the state affiliated media labels uh, that had applied to, to Russian and Chinese media are also gone. So that's that's great news. Yeah. So this is insane. Once again, you know, great timing with the fact that all of these agencies are now have access to generative AI that can create English and other, you know, content outside of their their na- native languages. Also, I don't think Musk understands why these things were created, right? The labels were not really about 
the Global Times and Russia Today and these other things that people widely understand. It is about all of the sub-brands, the Mafic Medias, the Red Zone, all of the things that were created specifically to get around people knowing that they're being manipulated by governments. And so I expect that now we will see, once again, the creation of lots of lots of content created by people who seem to be native speakers of a language and native to a language, they might be completely fake now, right? So you might have complete personas uh, that are virtual from top to bottom who work for a subsidiary, who work for a subsidiary for RT, CGTN and the like. And crazy, it's just a crazy move. It's a crazy move going into 2024. I think this is going to get him in real trouble, right? Because I think one of the things he doesn't understand is he thinks he is playing to the right, but the context of of government, foreign government interference in U.S. elections have changed completely in that they are equally against Republicans, depending on which country you're talking about. Um, when you talk about Iran or China, they're mostly attacking Republicans. They're not attacking Democrats. Russia is, is still more against Democrats. So you have this, in a situation like this, you can end up with everybody in Congress being angry at you. And I think he's going to end up with real trouble here because I don't think he understands the whole Mafic media challenge that the companies faced and, and specifically created these labels for. Well, it's okay, though, because the rest of Silicon Valley uh, is taking this uh, this threat really seriously for 2024. Is that right, Alex? Well, unfortunately, uh, something that happened this week is is uh, Meta did another round of layoffs. Uh, they're doing this multiple round thing, I think, is a horrible business strategy. People there are incredibly depressed. Morale is in the toilet. Nobody knows if, if they're going to be the next to go. You know, generally, the, the rules on doing layoffs is you do one huge one, you overcut more than you're supposed than you expect to. And then you're done. You tell people we're done. We're in a good place. Let's get back to work. Let's do the best we can. And said doing it over and over again is really destroying morale. And this week, uh, one of the teams that they deeply cut into was the team that investigates influence operations. So this hasn't been widely reported, but I know because I have a, a pile of resumes uh, that have come in of people who are looking for new jobs. And you know, this is a team that I had a, a small part in helping start back when I was there. And it was really great to see this team grow and become incredibly effective of spotting uh, attempts to manipulate uh, Facebook in, in mass, but then also pivoting off of that onto all kinds of different platforms, as well as in real life. You know, we, we worked with this team on our work on Russian interference in sub-Saharan Africa, which right now is a big deal because of what's going on in Sudan. And that included radio stations and newspapers and stuff. So you don't have that team at Facebook just protecting Facebook. They are protecting the entire world against mismanipulation because they have the data to figure out this is what the Wagner Group is doing in this country. And a lot of those folks are gone. And that is a, a huge loss. Of course, it's meta. So they're much more careful about it. They don't just announce it, right? Like Mark Zuckerberg isn't just going to go out and say, hey, I'm taking away state media labels. Um, and they still do have state media labels. But the team behind trying to enforce those rules, if that team doesn't exist, then the enforcement's going to get a lot worse. So 2024 is looking like an unbelievable mess from here. We're going to be in way worse shape from foreign foreign interference perspective than we were in 2020. Yeah. Once again, Musk is Mark Zuckerberg's best friend because while we're all uh, looking at the the blue check mark fiasco, this is happening. And I didn't even know about this until uh, you put it on the list for discussion today. Um, it, it's happening so quietly and, and going under the radar. So yeah, yeah, and and. Musk is really setting the stage here. And so what I expect will be it will be around transparency, right? So he set the stage that you don't have to care around foreign interference, that you don't have to care about spammers, that you don't have to enforce your hate speech rules, that you don't have to have transparency is is the next thing he set. And and that's my fear is that you see Facebook completely pulling back on transparency. 
Right, yeah. All the APIs get shut off, no data sharing, all of that, for sure. Okay, so meanwhile, though, uh, while these layoffs are happening at Meta, Meta's oversight board decided to weigh in and release uh, a policy advisory opinion on Meta's COVID-19 policy. And boy, oh boy, do I need to get some stuff off my chest about this. So for context, this is an advisory opinion that Meta requested in July 2022. So uh, count it, that's nine months ago that Meta said, hey, uh, oversight board, can you tell us whether, what, how would, you know, whether we should continue our COVID-19 misinformation policies uh, as the pandemic starts to subside. And basically nine months later, the board comes back and says, well, we've talked to a lot of people, we've read a lot of things, and man, that's a really tough question. Uh, You should really assemble some experts and do a lot of consulting to try and work out what to do. To which like Meta might reasonably reply, like, what are we paying you for? Like, you are the experts (laughs) that we assembled to consult about whether our COVID misinformation policies are respecting human rights. So, I mean, this is This is a 40-something page uh, opinion. There's some interesting stuff in there about like the limits of fact checkers in these uh, in these contexts, which was for a long time many people's favorite tools. You know, they were saying like there's real constraints around the number of fact checkers available, and also the fact that you know you get linked to a very technical article that really doesn't sort of resonate with the short emotive messages through which misinformation is is being spread. There's interesting stuff there about. Uh, warning screen labels and how rarely people click through them. And also the fact that, you know, those like uh, get the facts labels that were sprayed on basically a lot of COVID-19 content on Facebook. There was internal research showing that people had real label fatigue with those. So when they were seeing them way too often, they just stopped clicking on them and nobody was getting the facts. So uh, Meta's uh, scaling back those those interventions too. So I think that's really, that that kind of stuff's really interesting. It's empirical basis for the kinds of interventions that the platforms are taking. Which is we actually need. We need to dif- differentiate between the platforms doing a CYA by having a label and actually making things better. Um, right. You know, it, it, unfortunately, we also need, it would be great if kind of the critics were empirically based as well, which is where a lot of this stuff gets pushed from. But yes, I, I think you and I could take $100 million and start up an organization to tell them to go hire people uh, to look at their COVID policy. What do you think? It's incredible. It's it's amazing. They're, they're up to $280 million now, actually. Oh, wow. yeah. Right. So we'll do it for cheaper. So That's Mark, right. Exactly. Mark, if you're listening, I know he listens. <laughs> yeah. So we're, we're, here's Every our week. competitive tender bid. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it for 150 uh, and, you know, but there's some room to move there. Um, it's a time age of efficiency. That's that, it. Uh, and that'll <laughs> exactly. include you and I becoming the entire oversight board. <laughs> I mean, we won't have to. You won't have to worry about tenure. So. <laughs> That's, That's right. And honestly, I just you know I I have some cautious optimism about the board, but this decision just really I'm so disappointed. Uh, nine months and all they came back back with basically was a shruggy emoji and said, "Oh man, you need to." And and, and their advice, which landed on the same day as Meta is laying off four thousand people, is basically like stand up an entire new part of the company to continually review your COVID misinformation policies to check that they are continuously respectful uh, of human rights, but they didn't give yeah. any specific advice. So that's, uh, oh, oh, and for good measure, they inclu- include this line that says, also Meta should increase its investments in digital liter- literacy programs acro- across the world because uh, evidence had showed that they were good. So just- uh, Right. Great. Yeah. Just fix digital literacy. Exactly. You're set. <laughs> Throw some more money at that uh, while you're at it. So well, While you're firing the people who are ex- explicitly finding spies on your network. Exactly. So I don't, I don't know, very tone deaf opinion. Um, I just consistent with the idea that they don't really want to have to make the hard calls themselves because as many people find when they get in, put in the hot seat on content moderation, this stuff is hard. Okay. And uh, breaking news from the legal corner this morning. 
so the Supreme Court uh, continues to use my class syllabus as their cert grant roadmap, apparently. Um, so this morning they granted cert to hear two cases about whether and when government actors can block people on their social media accounts. So Garnier is about the Facebook pages of two elected trustees of a school board um, who blocked two parents in the district after they were repeatedly criticizing them. And Linke is a case about a city manager in Michigan who blocked a man who was critical of the city's COVID-19 response. Now, the Ninth Circuit found the school board trustees blocking unconstitutional. The Sixth Circuit upheld the city manager's right to block its critics. So there's this thing that looks like a circuit split. But in actual fact, the facts are pretty different here. Uh, one, the, the, the sort of basis of the ruling in Michigan was that this was quite clearly much more of a personal account. You know, this was his pre-existing personal account and he was posting things like his anniversary pictures or whatever on this page and it wasn't necessarily his official account. So this is the way that uh, this is what, you know, the Supreme Court's going to look at. When does an account become an official account? Uh, personally, I'm just amazed that these people litigate these things all the way to the Supreme Court. Like, it's <laughs> it's incredible. There's these people who just, like, so badly want to troll their public officials and these public officials that, like, so badly don't want, like, just really want to block them. Uh, I mean, it's embarrassing to post like when you get blocked by somebody and you post the, the screenshot it's a little embarrassing to say look i was blocked oh i'm being censored to take it to the supreme court is an amazing level of self-confidence of like i have things that are so important to be said that i will litigate to the supreme court of the united states of america whether or not i can be blocked yeah, it's but ridiculous. On the, and on the other side the government officials who are like so thin-skinned that they won't unblock them they're like no i can't handle it i can't handle these comments on my posts it's just yeah but okay I, so i think that i'm on the side of the public officials here i think social media creates it, you do not create a situation where people can just stand outside your house continuously and yell stuff at your kids and yell stuff at your family if you end up being like a county commissioner right that is not cons considered acceptable behavior and the internet allows that to happen not just from citizens but from people pretending to be citizens so again in a world where there's no check marks there's nobody looking for foreign influence campaigns and you can generate an infinite amount of of crap via ai i think it's fine for people to block stuff I, i'm sorry like open an incognito window if you're that that concern that you want to see what this guy's saying then, but I think social media is generally not usable unless you block people. And it is certainly not usable for somebody who does anything important or controversial. So I, I hope the Supreme court actually allows this kind of blocking and just gets rid of all of these stupid lawsuits. Like of all the things we're going to be litigating, like if all the incredibly important things we talk about on this show every week, that we need to figure out as a society whether or not like some county commissioner can block you because you're a jerk is ridiculous. So I mean I agree with you when it comes to private accounts. I do think if you're opening a public uh, a public account to announce your policies and things like that, the fact that you, you can exclude only your critics from that space from posting in the comments so that other people who are visiting the page can only see like positive people saying, oh, what a great policy. I do think that that really does have First Amendment implications. And so I guess, you know, you've just had a preview, right. people, of the, the Supreme Court well, argument. We will also replace Ted Olson or whoever is charging $2,000 an hour to make the argument in front of the Supreme Court. You can also hire uh, Evelyn and I. Yeah. Can, I can I enter this Supreme Court bar? What's the requirement? I mean, sure. Why not? Um, it's, it's definitely, definitely how it works. Has has anybody with an Aussie accent ever done an oral argument at the Supreme Court? Oh, that is a great question. I do not know the answer. If you do, listener, please write in. In the meantime... Right, um, of Kangaroo versus Uncle Sam, 1914. Yes. Yeah, that's right. I, I will try and be the first, if not. Although I will say, just you know, like small uh, little win, um, the amicus brief that we, we uh, wrote in the case that got argued last week that we mentioned was actually mentioned in oral argument. Oh, um, so very nice. That was my first name drop in Supreme Court oral argument. So looking to, to step up next time. Nice. Nice. You've made point 
Yeah. Scoreboard, everybody. Yeah. All of <laughs> Evelyn's <you>. critics. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so uh, so we will look forward to uh, to. I, I mean, I completely agree that it's amazing that the, I saw someone tweet that this is going to be one of the most important first Am- uh, cases that the Supreme Court's going to hear next year. I I could not agree less. But I mean, we're <laughs> ending up like with all these Supreme Court cases, we're ending up in a situation where every single piece of content on social media is either legally required to be there or legally not required to be taken down. Like right. there's no discretion left that everything is just going to be litigated. So and the Supreme court will individually weigh in on in each individual piece of right, content right yeah oye 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 in cat turd 2 versus zuckerberg exactly <laughs> all rise yes <laughs> the government actor can uh, block this piece of content unless it has been amplified by the social media platform which absolutely cannot block that piece of content um that is that is the current the current state of the law we'll see so fun week here lots of uh lots of stuff going on. Alex, anything else? uh, Any news in your corner of the world? Well, the Sacramento Kings and the Golden State Warriors, uh, my two teams, SAC being number one, the Warriors being my number two team, are having absolutely epic NBA finals. Yesterday, uh, the Warriors tied it up. They were down 2-0. It is now 2-2 going back to Sacramento. Golden One Center is going to be rocking and rolling. Uh, So be there, be square, bring your cowbell, and it's going to be wild on uh, Wednesday evening. Well, I don't know. I don't know if you'll believe this, but no one has answered our plea and sent us comp tickets for the for the matches uh, for, the, for the games Shockingly, yet. So yes. um, we'll, we'll just have to watch uh, watch from home. Um, and with that, this has been your moderated content weekly update. This show is available in all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And show notes are available at law.stanford.edu/forward/slash/moderated-content. This episode wouldn't be possible without the research and editorial assistance of John Perino, uh, and it is produced by the wonderful Brian Pelletier. Special thanks also to Justin Fu and. See you next week.